Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 200 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of the Austrian Grand Prix from Spielberg, Austria, where the Red Bull ring is. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau. I thought you were going to say where the Red Bull flows freely, because it probably did with all the Red Bull sponsorship around the track and uh, the whole the whole Red Bull statue and everything. It's, uh, it, you know, it flows like water over there. Well, the Red Bull money definitely flows freely. He's got a museum of yachts and cars and all kinds of things there. He's got a couple bucks. But we've got... Mr. Bull, that is. We've got 200 episodes. <laughs> I'm laughing because you know that... Well, first of all, when we started this, we were in our 20s. Yes. And what are we now? Like, I, I lost track. Well, I, I'm 47. <laughs> I think I'm 61. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing we count in dog years, isn't it? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. 200 episodes makes you want to wax nostalgic, but maybe we should save that for a touch later on because there was a race that happened in Austria. That's why we're recording. And boy, it was quite the race, wasn't it? Yeah, even from the qualifying session and, and uh, Saturday practice where it was a dry track and then all of a sudden became a wet track with uh, with some sudden rain sh- rainfall and just everyone scrambling to deal with that. And then some of our favorite qualifying sessions where the track is wet but drying. So, you know, torrential downpour isn't really fun for anyone, especially when they red flag the session and all that. You know, that's just kind of lame. But when the track starts to dry out and then there's a crossover point of people trying dry tires and all that and, and coming in, it can lead to some unexpected moments and some unexpected people doing better than normal. So that's exactly what we got in qualifying, which was exciting. Great to see the likes of Jensen Button and Nico Hulkenberg right up near the top. Pretty typical qualifying for the Mercedes, except, of course, that Nico Rosberg had a five-grid spot penalty to push him back, and Vettel also had a penalty. So definitely kind of a mixed-up day in terms of the grid. Ultimately, though, Hamilton, beginning of the weekend, said he was sort of lost at sea and didn't know where he was going with setup, but really obviously found his stride and was able to actually earn pole position. It wasn't because of penalties that he was there, but he had the fastest time in Q3 and really put his stamp on that and then, of course, went on to partake in the race. It was quite fascinating. You mentioned the five grid spot penalty for Nico Rosberg and a five grid spot penalty for Sebastian Vettel. Those penalties were both because of gearbox and they rearranged the grid as such it was amazing qualifying right on their own but as it turned out because Nico was shuffled back and Vettel we had Nico Hulkenberg on the front row alongside Lewis Hamilton and Jensen Button on the second row alongside Kimi Raikkonen and Jensen Button was on the grid third so you look at McLaren and the well, trying time they've had putting a race car together and competing, all of a sudden they're in the second row, racing in the front. It was kind of an incredible qualifying just from that aspect alone, and yet that was on top of broken suspension parts, yellow flags, red flags, all kinds of craziness that happened Q1 through Q3. But as you said, it culminated ultimately in Lewis Hamilton being on pole. That on its own wasn't that surprising, but I think just about everything else was. So it was Lewis by about half a second over Nico and everyone else, and that was in these changeable conditions, as we said, where for a while uh, Nico Rosberg said, oh no, the wet tires are the right ones. No, no, don't go to drives, it's too wet. And then someone went to drives first and started dominating on lap times. And we said, oh, well, actually, yeah, maybe the drives are the way. And they, everyone did their changes. But even before Q3, shout out to Pascal Verline in the manner for honestly earning his way to 12th spot in Q2. 
he did a really good job with that car and uh, and put it in 12th spot. And then, of course, skipping ahead to the race, was able to bring it home in 10th and score his first point. So, you know, separate from all the battles at the top and all the controversy that we'll get into, I'm super happy for Pascal and for the small team. This is the second time in their history that they've had a point-scoring finish. The first time, of course, Monaco with the late Jules Bianchi. It's just a huge boost to the team, huge boost to the driver. It's, it's great to see that, you know, a team like that that's been knocking on the door a few times finally gets some results. So he earned it in qualifying. I mean, he, uh, you know, Pascal had the car in 12th compared to 19th for Rio Harianto. Uh, and then in the race, uh, Rio ended up being the last car running and, uh, and Pascal, like we say, in 10th. So great weekend for them. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a far cry from uh, some of these other teams looking for wins and stuff, but for a team like Manor, just to get a point, it's great to just see them on the board. And uh, that's, it's kind of like a win for a small team like that. Yeah. We can remember the joy that Minardi used to have when they scored a point. And it must be said that Back in the minority days, it was more difficult to score a point, but it was still a monumentous occasion. It was the first points for Manor of the season, and only the second time ever, I think I'm saying that correctly, it was also the first time, at least my memory, the Manor got into Q2. And as you said, he did it solidly. So to not just be 16th, but 12th, that was a very impressive run. And we're skipping ahead some other things, of course, but Bearline. He ran an amazing race, extremely competitive, and that includes unfortunate timing with the safety car because he pitted right before it came out. So he ended up cycling to last on the grid despite all this valiant effort to not be last where they are usually in these uh, kind of situations. So Pascal Verline then had to fight through traffic to get back up into a mid-pack position and then right on the last lap or last couple of the laps, Sergio Perez ended up having to park the car or crash or whatever he did. Yeah, he had a he had a brake brake failure, sent him off the track, and that was just enough because Checo was an eighth at the time. So that helped Carlos Sainz Jr. move up one and Valtteri Botas and Pascal Verline all moved up one. So nice little uh, handout for them. And that was yeah, lap sixty nine of seventy one. So that was right up near the end. That's exactly right. So just a brilliant job for Pascal Verline, a fantastic job for Manor and it was great to see for my statistics as well. 10 out of the 11 teams have scored a point so far this season, and that's less than halfway through. So there's an opportunity that, in fact, all 11 teams could score a point because we got, preceding this race and this podcast, the good news that Sauber is slowly but surely sorting out and clearing its financial crisis that it had. It was able to pay people. <laughs> that's a good thing. And they're talking about bringing updates to the car soon. So Sauber might be competitive, more so at least, and they might grab a point before the season's out, which would mean all 11 teams scoring, which I think that on its own is a remarkable achievement. Yeah, definitely. And it's always good to see, uh, especially these, these small teams that could really use a, a boost for media stuff, a boost for their sponsors, and to not make a bad problem worse, like we've seen when so many times we have these big crashes and failures and, and problems for the small teams. But hey, to have some success, even if it's just one point, that's still a huge step forward for them. And uh, it's, it's you know really heartening to see. At the other end of the grid, before we talk Silver Arrows, uh, can we talk Ferrari for a second? Well, I'm not done with talking about qualifying, really. <laughs> oh, man. All right. In Q1, we had suspension failures. In Q2, we had more suspension failures, and it started raining at the end. And then in Q3, you saw an incredibly quick drying track, which led to brilliantly dynamic driving, unusual positions for people, and just some fantastic kind of nail-biting moments. 
I just couldn't believe that we saw Nico Hulkenberg on the front row, and we also saw yet again more, oh boy, just more horrifying luck for Daniel Kafiat. He was the cause of the red flag in Q2 because his suspension upright failed and just sent him spinning and hitting two sets of walls both times pretty hard. Yeah, it was an ugly crash because, uh, of course, the suspension failed. It was strangely not on the outside loaded corner of the car, but it was on the inside. You know, it was, of course, in the right-hand corner. The left side of the car is all loaded up, and it was the, the right rear upright that just really went wrong for him. Sent the car into a spin, and it, I guess you could say horrifying luck or the fact that he was okay. I mean, means it all sort of turned out okay in the end, but reasonably good luck in that he grazed that first barrier because if he'd been just a few feet farther to the right and that was just a hard stop at that first barrier, that could have been a more serious accident. You know, probably would have still been okay, but could have had a higher chance of injury and stuff. So yeah, it was not the way you want to go around anywhere near in that corner, but to have the car slowed down a little bit by the first impact and then off across the gravel, it looked pretty scary at the time, but he got up and walked away and, and he was fine. The team worked Really, really difficult hours to put the car back together, get everything going for him for a race start for the next day. He gets one lap in the car and then has a failure and then stops. So it was a huge amount of effort over at SCR for really nothing good on uh, Kafiat's side of the garage. That's unfortunate to see that it's not a, this good turnaround story to say, hey, we got him back in the car and everything turned out okay. And he came back and scored points. It's like, nope, he had one lap in the car and then it, uh, and then it failed again. So that's just how it goes, I guess, some weekends. Carlos Sainz Jr., his Red Bull Toro Rosso teammate did not do any of those things and finished with four points in eighth place. It is not going well for Daniel Kvyat. It's been a comedy of errors for him this season. To have the high of being on the podium with the Red Bull, then one low after another and after another, and just when you think it couldn't get worse, he finds a way to get it worse. Now, are these things his fault? I'm not claiming that, but I'm not also admonishing him of all guilt here either. I think he's playing a role. I think he's in a bad place mentally, emotionally, and I think it's coming through in his racing results. Boy, it's just not looking good for him. I I don't know if he's going to be here in 2017, and it's getting harder to think he'll be here for the rest of 2016. It is. I think it comes down to who else Red Bull and STR and the big family have to replace him at this point because he's still a competent F1 driver. But uh, yeah, I agree. And it's made all the more clear by looking at the success that his, what, team swap mate, whatever you call it, the, you know, Max Verstappen, who, of course, uh, traded seats with him, to see how well Max has done since then with, of course, a race win. Uh, and now this another podium. This is a second place result for him here in Austria. Uh, of course, the, the only Red Bull driver on the podium. It's just a dream kind of result for Max. And such a big contrast to Kafiat, who's just after the switch, he, you know, he, anyone would want to just go out and sort of prove your boss is wrong, right? And say, oh yeah, you put me in the bad car, but man, look what I can do with it. I'm still great. I'm still making all these good moves and scoring all the points and whatever, but it's just not gone that way. And then Max Verstappen, who's just sort of vindicated the decision to say, hey, put this guy in the better car. And he hasn't outqualified Daniel Ricciardo, but he has on every occasion uh, ended up higher, I guess I would say. I won't necessarily say outraced because of course there have been some strategy questions about what Red Bull's doing with Ricciardo, but the results uh, are what they are and not a bad way to go for Verstappen. So let's switch to some more bad news. <laughs> it was also not a good day for the Ferrari driver, Sebastian Vettel. He had a tire failure. This had nothing to do with the suspension uprights, at least not directly that we can tell. He was going down the straightaway and his rear tire blew and that caused a spin 
which caused him to hit the wall, which ended his race. He was not happy. Yeah, Vettel started in ninth spot with the, the penalties and everything, the way things uh, panned out. He had not pitted yet, so this is still on his first set of tires. His lap 26, he had worked his way up to first because Hamilton had pitted and because Reckon had pitted. So this seems to me like he's pushing really long on a stint. All these interviews and stuff, Vettel said, oh, this was a freak thing. It's just, he's like, the tires felt fine. The lap times were stable. And then all of a sudden the tire just let go. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's every once in a while we see these things with Pirelli and it seems like, oh yeah, there's lots of tire failures. And they say, oh, well, there's just a lot of debris. So it is what it is. I mean, there's things that are too small for us to see on the camera pictures. And it's certainly possible. Though a strange thing about the statement from Pirelli is they say uh, this was an isolated incident. That's the, the term they kept using was, oh, this is an isolated incident, which doesn't mean it wasn't the tire's fault or a failure, like a kind of a freak thing. All they're saying is like, this is the only one that happened. And we're like, yeah, well, we know that because we would have seen if this happened to other cars. So the fact that it's isolated doesn't say that it is or isn't your fault. Um, that doesn't really help clarify the situation as to why did this happen? Or what was this something because he was running the tires so long? Or was there something weird with the pressures? Or was it just simply, yeah, he hit a thing. And then just because the tire was then so ragged, because he'd been running it for 26 laps, that caused it to blow uh, or whatever. You know, it was a one of those things where he's going along. Yeah, it was a super solid race up into first place, of course, having not yet taken his pit stop. So it's who knows where he would have ended up. But strategy-wise, it was starting to look more solid for Ferrari. And then this, of course, just it just ended, you know, he had this spectacular failure, tries to correct for it, ends up in the wall and spinning around. And then it was a safety car after that. Just a lame way for him to end his race. It's funny. I would call it the exact opposite of an isolated incident. I think that tire went pretty much everywhere. It went out, it went around, it hit his car, it hit the track, it hit other cars. And it's interesting because Vettel had the problem he has. His teammate, the elder statesman, Iceman himself, Kimi Raikkonen, ended up finishing third for a Ferrari podium. So it was not an altogether terrible result for the team. It was just a bad result for Vettel himself. And as a result, speaking of results, Kimi Raikkonen and Vettel are tied in the Drivers' Championship, both with 96 points. So that is a far cry from where Kimi was a couple seasons back with Ferrari and even last season with Vettel as a teammate. So it's a very close championship at the moment between those two teammates. But unlike certain other teams, that relationship between teammates seems stable and amicable. I don't see any coming fireworks as a result. It's interesting. You mentioned Max Verstappen. He went ahead and finished second. Another great race for him. His teammate, Daniel Ricciardo, not as good, not bad, but he ended up finishing fifth. I'm curious how he's going to feel about this race result. Yeah, we haven't heard from Ricciardo. I haven't I haven't seen. I mean, there's so much other drama, of course, the Mercedes, the Ferrari, uh, with Alonzo, Button. Just, there's so many more people to talk to that have interesting stories that I just haven't heard if Ricciardo is pleased with that or not. I don't know if there were any egregious uh, strategy calls that went against him, but looking at the lap charts and stuff, it's like, you know, Ricardo started, what, fifth and just kind of was, was floating around, occasionally gaining, occasionally losing, keeping position for a long time, and then ending in fifth spot. So I guess a pretty quiet race. I don't know if, if he was uh, expecting to have a whole lot more from that. Of course, benefited from the guys in front of him that uh, that, that lost out and didn't quite make it around Rosberg, even with the uh, the penalty that we'll talk about for Rosberg. Sort of a, a quiet race. I don't know if he's got much to say about it, but... It's another instance, though, where his, you know, young, brand new teammate, Max Verstappen, is getting all the attention and uh, and all the press and the podiums and so on. So in general, he's probably not thrilled about that, but I'm not sure he's got any specific complaints about a strategy call or anything that was made that should have been a problem for him. So let's move on to another team that had 
varying results. And I'm going to start with the good news here. Jensen Button finished sixth in the Austrian Grand Prix. That's his best result in quite a while. Netted him eight points for his troubles. And it was by far the most competitive we've seen Jensen Button in a McLaren in quite a long time. It was really fascinating to me because he started on the second row. He was very competitive and he managed to pass a lot of people on track. Car seemed well. But when he was interviewed after the race, he was very lukewarm about the whole situation. It's like, oh, well, we're still weak on the straightaways. The cars are, it's okay in the corner, but we still have a lot of work to do. But people know that. So, yeah, it was okay, I guess. And I thought to myself, man, I I would expect you to be more upbeat about this kind of result. It makes me nervous for Jensen in the future because to not have the enthusiasm, even when you have a stronger result, to me is a bad sign of your hunger, your motivation to stay in Formula One racing. Yet he claims he wants to. But going back, Fernando Alonso, another DNF, he ended up finishing 18th classified. So no points for him. Not a good day. Much better day for Jensen. But Jensen was not overly pleased about it. And boy, I'm a big Jensen Button fan and I'm troubled by this. Well, I don't, I mean, Jensen's not going to be a driver forever and he's not necessarily going to be a McLaren driver forever. So I don't think it's world ending kind of news to think, okay, maybe he's thinking ahead. Maybe he knows there's already some, some deal in the works with maybe Williams has been talked about or something else, or if he's got some, some plans lining up in WEC where his, his mind is elsewhere and it's yeah, a better weekend, but this isn't necessarily like some big turnaround. It's not like it was a, if it was a dry session and he qualified and you know got second just on its merit, that would be one thing, but it was the combination of penalties from other drivers and uh, a wishy-washy session. And it's great especially Jensen has always been able to take advantage of weird track surfaces, you know, wet but drying and make a good tire call and then just drive that car once he gets the tires on there and do really well. So he's able to to get a good result when things come together for him, but it's not necessarily like it was a turning point for McLaren to say, oh, we figured out this thing and now our cooling is sorted and now we've got all this power and everything's great and look, we're just on pace with these cars. So I don't know what, I mean, he, he of course knows probably more than we do, certainly more than we do about what's happening next year and kind of where his focus really is. And maybe that plays into it a little bit when he's not saying, oh my gosh, McLaren, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I'm going to be the next world champion at McLaren. It's going to be this. He's like, yeah, okay, maybe they get a little bit better throughout the season, but they're not going to be in with a championship look here, even for next year, even if he's still a McLaren driver next year, uh, it's it's hard to think that he's going to be turning it around with McLaren. So whether he's sort of, you know, looking out of the corner of his eye, looking at Williams and saying, hey, those guys have that Mercedes powertrain and that thing's still pretty good. And maybe I'll move over there or just planning something else. Either way, it doesn't seem really negative to me, but I guess that's just kind of my my take on it. I appreciate your take on it. I guess I'm a little bit more sensitive to it than you are because we just talked about Kimi Raikkonen and Jensen Button. Those are the elder statesmen of the sport. They are my age, effectively, and I don't want them to leave. I do want Jensen Button to be driving Formula One forever. Thank you very much. Anyway, the one that Jensen Button beat was Romain Grosjean in the Haas Ferrari. Haas was back in the points, and it was good to see a encouraging result from the American team yet again. The last few Grand Prix have been a little bit troubling for Haas. They seem to be not even close to the points, not as competitive as they were earlier on. Yet another mixed bag kind of performance because Esteban Gutierrez could manage no better than 11th a lap down. But still, Romain has clearly surfaced as the lead driver, and he yet again scored solid points for the team. 
Yeah, I mean, Grosjean going from 12th to 7th is a very, very good race and looks like just kind of methodically working his way through the race and making good calls and making some passes and stuff like that. Uh, Gutierrez has been in a tough spot. He's been apparently pretty sick the last few races. He was actually in the hospital after the race in Baku. So it, it sounds like he's sort of over that now and hopefully can get back to getting comfortable in the car and getting fast and, you know, getting good. I mean, he's been okay at the car, obviously, but as much concentration and physical exertion and everything as it takes to drive a Formula One car, I imagine, yeah, just any kind of just actual illness and, you know, personal kind of health problem uh, would be a detriment. So, I hope that Esteban can turn himself around and start to uh, have some good performances. But otherwise, that's another one of those seats we'll be looking at to say, okay, is he doesn't seem like he's on the stepping stone to Ferrari for next year or maybe the year after. Who knows? Is that going to be a call where someone else in the Ferrari ladder is going to be put in his place to uh, start filling that seat at Haas and, and moving forward? Because it seems like, you know, he's just not had great results. Some of them haven't been his fault. Of course, there's been teething problems and stuff in the car, but Rogro just seems to be doing really well with the car at whatever opportunities he's given. And also, you know, real sort of friendly and positive about the whole thing and just seems to be a good force in the whole operation. So I wish Esteban well, and I hope it comes together for him. Also, he's probably going to be a key player at the Mexican Grand Prix uh, when that happens later on in the year. So I look forward to that. For now, I think he's got to make sure he's, you know, gets back on form quickly and uh, gets some good, you know, good points in the middle part of the season here. It's interesting that you mentioned the Mexican Grand Prix because that's actually what I wanted to mention is that he's also being outshone by the other Mexican driver in the field, Sergio Perez. Two podiums, a lot of great results. Force India showing some real genuine pace. Esteban, on the other hand, just kind of fading in the background. I did not know that he was feeling ill to the point that he was spending time in the hospital. So I do hope that he recovers once for all from that. I hope that as a result, he gets a little bit more competitive. If he goes faster and makes Grosjean nervous, then that's actually just that's good for the whole team. So I I wish them well. I think we did a pretty good job of covering the bases so we can get into the one and only story that anyone really cares about, <laughs> which is Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg. The magnets came together again. This is not the second time this has happened. This is the third time it's happened. It just didn't get that much coverage because in Canada, it was no damage incurred and it was the beginning of the race and the race carried on and a lot of other things happened. Yeah. So to set up the. Hamilton-Rosberg dynamic here. So Hamilton was on pole, as we talked about. He stayed in first place until lap 21 when he pit. Went back to fourth, and then there was a safety car for Vettel and all that kind of stuff. He worked his way back up. Hamilton was then in second for basically the whole rest of the race until the very end, like we'll talk about. So, Well, why was Hamilton in second? Yeah. Hamilton was in second place because during his first pit stop, they had trouble with, I don't know what it was, the left rear corner, I think, and ended up being a five to six second pit stop instead of a two second pit stop. And that was enough for Nico Rosberg to get around, cycle through ahead of Lewis Hamilton. So that's how he ended up in second in the first place with a team mistake in the pits. That's right, because Nico, as we recall, started sixth, moved up to fifth on the first lap, and then actually already had done a pit stop and cycled back up to be fourth. But then with Vettel having problems, and then, of course, uh, with that long pit stop, like we talked about, that moved Nico into uh, ahead of Hamilton. And then after Vettel stopped, moved him into first place, uh, where they stayed until they, they did cycle around. Max Verstappen was leading for a little bit. But uh, 
Rosberg has fought his way back and done a great job to do so. I don't think anyone could take that away from him. And then it was basically Hamilton's long pit stop, which seemed like just a mechanic error or something with the wheel nut or whatever. I don't think it was anything the driver did. But that little bit of a delay, uh, you know, a few seconds, as we know, is uh, is all, all it needs to take sometimes. So that sets them up. And then at the final pit stop, of course, Hamilton takes on softs and Rosberg takes on super softs, which was another point of contention once Hamilton realized that. He's like, why is that in tougher tires? So yet again, that kind of not mistrust necessarily, but the second guessing between Hamilton and his mechanics about, hey, we're doing our own race and we've got our strategy and we're doing our thing. And Hamilton looking over the, to the other side and saying, oh, well, what's Nico doing? Why is he doing that? And in as much as the team can reply to him and tell him what's going on, uh, which seemed like quite a bit. I mean, the team was doing what I would call a little bit of coaching, talking about when it was hammer time and when to push and those kind of things, which uh, we've talked about last time about, I don't know exactly where that line is, but no one got in trouble for any of those things. As it comes down, of course, you know, turn two and on the very last lap, uh, Hamilton is trying and trying and trying to get up to. He had he had caught Rosberg, no problem, trying to pass him. He, uh, Hamilton keeps having DRS, but of course, so does Rosberg because there's lap traffic. So just lap after lap, they're very, very close. They're working their way through traffic. And then this is sort of finally, it's the last lap. They finally have this chance. Rosberg apparently has a brake problem, so they say, or uh, doesn't give well, Hamilton home. Well, or he, there's... he legitimately had a brake problem. I don't, I mean, look, we saw throughout the entire Grand Prix Massive amounts of dust coming out of the car. I I think it's uh, he legitimately had a brake problem. Yes, all the other things. <laughs> I'm not trying to say that caused everything. I'm just saying let's not let's it, that happened. That was real. Okay, so we'll say so. He definitely had a brake problem. Also, potentially a judgment problem or steering problem, depending on how you perceive it. Well, <laughs> but <laughs> a, uh, he had a combination of issues and. Here's what's amazing about it. Hamilton complained about being on the soft tires instead of the super soft tires. The team said, look, we think the soft tires are actually faster in this circumstance. It seemed to be that the team was being proved right because Hamilton was indeed catching Rosberg. After the race, Toto Wolff actually said, we wanted to put Rosberg on softs as well, but Rosberg didn't have a set to put on. So Rosberg, unfortunately, as far as the team was concerned, put on the super softs as opposed to the softs. Anyway, Rosberg had been racing brilliantly the entire time he was lapping at a pace that he could pass Hamilton in the pit stop cycle and maintain that lead. It was not a given that Hamilton was going to catch Rosberg. When he finally did, Rosberg was holding him off quite well. They were both sneaking through lap traffic very effectively. And it was the penultimate lap that they got really close. And it was the last lap of the race this happened. I'm sorry you could not write a script this good. It was incredible. So, last lap, Jim, go. <laughs> Turn one, Rosberg has a bit of a bobble and uh, allows Hamilton to sort of have a run at him. Down into turn two, Hamilton's on the outside, Rosberg's on the inside. So Hamilton is, is giving him room because he knows he's there on the inside. So Hamilton's car is, uh, you know, what, a quarter of a car length ahead of Rosberg? So they're, they're side by side. Not even, I mean, an eighth of a car length, but... He is a nose ahead. Yeah, a nose ahead. That's a way better term than eighth of a car length. Um, so just over so slightly ahead, but not in front of. And then, you know, goes to turn in to kind of get around the outside line around this corner. And uh, in the process, I'm so doing, uh, crashes into Nico Rosberg, who has his car really in the middle of the track and not where you'd expect it to be for getting around that corner, you know, for this medium tight right hander. 
in a technical sense, you know, this is something we talked about with the coverage and all that. Hamilton did crash into Rosberg in terms of who hit whom here. I don't think we can refute that. But in terms of who was at fault and all that, that's where the debate kind of comes in. To be clear here, this was, you know, Rosberg was, was going more straight on. He did actually turn in before he'd hit the car, but it was only just for whatever reason, whether he's battling with brakes or just not wanting to give Hamilton an inch or some combination of both. Rosberg ends up with his car right in the middle of the track and Hamilton does turn in across him. Uh, which, of course, uh, just to complete the picture here, damages Nico Rosberg's front wing. He can continue, but he's going really much slower. At Ros- you know, Hamilton easily gets around him and goes on to finish the race and win. So, uh, you know, I'm just thinking through in Hamilton's mind when he's chasing, 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 working so hard to push him, to pass him, doesn't quite get it done. I mean, you know, Hamilton did actually back off after this, and then Rosberg was still in front, but his wing is broken. So the moment that Hamilton saw that the wing on Rosberg's car was all jacked up and saw all these sparks flying out of it, he must have just had the best feeling in the world of just like, oh, man, we had this coming together and now must be super grateful that his own car was still working because it looked like his suspension took a bit of a wallop for Hamilton to have his own car working, but then also see, oh man, Nico's got a problem. That's cynical or not. That's like all he would have wanted in life at that moment was to see, okay, his teammate slowing so that Hamilton could get around and go on and finish the race. So it's not how you want a Grand Prix to end because you'd want to sort of fight clean, I would think, and have a battle and and have somebody get, somebody wins and and go on. But uh, he must've been so gratified to see that, okay, in his mind, Rosberg didn't leave him room, didn't give him any place to go. Hamilton held his line. They had this coming together, but it worked out much better for Hamilton than it did for Rosberg. And then that's kind of with a controversy. I guess people see that differently because there was so much booing and stuff on the podium. I was even I was pretty surprised well, by that. That's exactly it. But, uh, two interesting points, I think, to bring up. And then you and I are going to get into the subjective. First point, Nico Rosberg was the one that received a penalty. He received two penalties, in fact a reprimand for not stopping the car when it was damaged, which is a new thing. You're not supposed to keep driving the car to the finish line or to the pit lane if it's damaged to the point that it can cause damage to other cars. Flying pieces of front wing definitely counts as that, but it wasn't so bad that Nico had no control of the car, so the FIA felt a reprimand was sufficient for that particular penalty. But then he also received a 10-second penalty added to his race time for causing a collision which, of course, was with his teammate, Lewis Hamilton, which is, of course, what we're talking about. It was kind of a non-penalty penalty as it all worked out because he received 10 additional seconds added to his race time, which did not change his position in the race. So he still finished fourth, no different. But it was just kind of adding insult to injury at that point. The crowd booing, we are in Austria, which is definitely a neighbor of Germany, and Nico very proudly wears German nationality, so there's probably a fair amount more Nico fans in Austria than Lewis fans. However, Lewis didn't help himself by reacting the way he did to the fans. It was a, a little bit unfortunate. I At one point, he said, well, I don't know why they're booing. That's their problem. <laughs> yeah, but what are you going to say? when? I mean, it's an awkward conversation anyway it's not like you're really going to have a intelligent conversation where it's you and then it's you know forty thousand screaming people who are upset about one thing or other it's not like you're really going to say oh let's talk about this right now it's kind of like uh, you Tim, know it couldn't have been more than thirty nine thousand. yeah fair enough don't exist but what are you going to do it's sort of i mean i guess to say, you don't have to say that the second part about that's their problem but I, I think in that moment he doesn't feel like he's a bad guy he did his thing and the stewards ended up end up vindicating him at least in their eyes and he's like yeah we have this coming together and that's unfortunate and i guess there's certainly some people that are probably fans of the team 
as just Mercedes and thinking, oh, they could have been a one-two and now it's not. And if they ascribe that to Lewis's actions, then maybe they're just sort of upset about that. Although I don't know how many people really care so much about a team and not so much about a guy. I don't think he's wrong to sort of to say, like, I don't know why they're booing. Maybe you don't have to say the second part, but the first part seems reasonable to me, at least. Here's what bothered me about the whole situation. Nico absolutely took a totally wonky line going into that corner on the last lap. He turned in way, way late. And when he started turning in, it seemed like he had a touch understeer, which if that were the case, that obviously didn't help things. But he made one legal move to the inside to defend. Absolutely proper. Everyone would do that. Lewis went to the outside. Absolutely proper. Everyone would do that. They both broke very late for the corner. Absolutely proper. Everyone would do that. And Lewis pretty abruptly turned in. He turned in late trying to anticipate Nico Rosberg and not hit, but he didn't really pay that close attention because he turned in fairly aggressive and Lewis hit Nico. Had Lewis kept more control and let Nico shoot right by and turned in and stayed much closer to the apex, he would have whistled right by Nico and Nico still would have finished second and everyone would have been happy. So I'm really having a hard time putting all the blame on Nico for this one. I feel like it's, I <laughs> I don't know, maybe even a touch more Lewis's fault, but I think it's 50-50 otherwise. Well, I, first of all, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that if they hadn't crashed, that Lewis would have gotten around. Nico, like we say, had the inside line. So if he were able to even stay just a nose in front and they're going down the next straightaway, uh, of course, that's when Checo Perez had his brake failure. There was a local yellow for the next sector. So they would they would have neutralized them for a little while. At least they could say, you know, you can't make a pass under that local yellow. Of course, that wasn't really a problem in the race because once Rosberg's car is damaged and, you know, sort of disabled or whatever, that's a little bit different than making an on-track pass. So there was that sort of brief flash of like, oh, man, is this a pass under yellow? And it's like, no, it doesn't really count because of the nature of what's going on. But, you know, they didn't know that at the time. And there's, you know, a lot of calculus. We can look at it from the outside with all the camera angles and replays and so on. But just looking at, you know, if you do a freeze frame of where the cars are, when they came together, there's so much room between where Rosberg's car is and the apex of the corner that is normally where the racing line would be. He was sort of outside of even what you would think of as a wide line through that corner. It was clearly Rosberg being defensive. He owned up to that even in a, in a post-race interview. And they said, oh, is this a problem with your brakes or was this, you know, not wanting to let Lewis around the corner? And even even then he says, oh, it's a bit of both. He's owning up to the fact that, okay, he's he's putting the car there intentionally to try to make this difficult. It's not that Lewis's tires were right on the outside edge of the track where it's that he couldn't have gone farther. I agree that Lewis could have stayed out farther, but I think there was plenty of room given and this was Rosberg intentionally making life difficult. Um, and it's a little hard to say if Rosberg had given him, I'm sorry, if, if Hamilton had given it just a little bit more space, if Rosberg still wouldn't have let his car drift out and still try to cause problems and really try to defend that corner harder than he needed to. You know, I'm in agreement with the stewards that this skews more towards Nico than Lewis. I don't think the stewards give a percent thing to say, oh, it's 100% this and 0% that. And I, and I agree that it is a an accident, you know, or a crash involving two people. Um, it's not that it was that there's nothing Lewis could have done and it was just all Rosberg and whatever. But yeah, call it 60-40, call it 70-30, whatever, that this was more Rosberg's doing than Hamilton's and that the uh, penalty, like you say, didn't end up mattering. And maybe that's part of what they looked at when they said, okay, we can't just encourage people to get in crashes with each other and say that there's no penalties for that. So we want to do something. But it didn't, you know, if in their minds and the stewards, they said, okay, it's not really worth more than a 10-second post-race time penalty, which in this case didn't move him back anyway then it sort of ends up not really being a penalty, but the real penalty is finishing fourth instead of first. 
what I'm describing from Lewis wasn't going to be, hey, turn in even later. What I was describing is the classic over-under move. Let Nico outbreak himself, miss the apex by a car length and a half, take the proper line, and accelerate, you know, get on the throttle much earlier and accelerate away. It would have taken, admittedly, a touch more, not, uh, I'm not saying Lewis should have predicted the future, but it would have taken a touch more level-headedness, a little bit more foresight to say, okay, I got to stay calm here and drive cleanly. I think that Lewis, to a certain extent, was making an effort to drive cleanly, but still from a very aggressive mindset. No, I'm certainly not trying to put all the blame on Lewis Hamilton, but I'm just incredibly cautious about putting all the blame on Nico. And as you said, it was both drivers and no one's saying, oh, this person gets 75% of the blame, this one 25 or whatever. Toto Wolf, again, when he was interviewed after the fact, said, hey, it takes two to tango and both these guys have to talk. But I just, I, I can't get away from the fact that it was not Nico understeering into Lewis. It was Lewis turning into Nico. For me, that's a sticking point, And I don't know. I just can't get past that. So, gosh, maybe that's why the Austrians were booing. <laughs> but I think the next thing definitely worthy of discussion is, what do you think Mercedes is going to do? Toto Wolf himself said, hey, just giving orders to the drivers is on the table now. We can't just let them race if they keep crashing into each other. And that's entirely reasonable. Yeah, I thought Toto's post-race interview, this was just with Will Buxton, so it may not have been on international coverage, but I thought it was really level-headed because he said, yeah, we're all petrol heads here. Like, we all want to let guys race. No one wants to just see drivers that are directed to do certain things from from on high. But come on, guys, uh, if you keep crashing the cars and causing drama and giving us fewer points than we otherwise would have had, then we're going to have to do something. So I don't think it was any kind of brash reaction or anything crazy. It was a very reasonable argument to say like, yeah, we all want the, we all want good fair driving, but when you don't get fair driving, we're going to have to figure something out. So that's the question. Are these guys compatible as teammates, really? They, of course, we saw with what Hamilton and Alonso where just personality-wise and the money and the stature and the racing and the whole thing, it just kind of like, these guys just cannot work together as teammates and somebody, something's got to give. So there's questions about that now swirling around. And, you know, Hamilton does have a multi-year contract going with, with Mercedes right now. Of course, things can change and there's lots of money involved. So somebody can buy out somebody else and they can figure something out. Rosberg could end up in a Ferrari maybe next year. I don't know. There's a lot of ways you can sort of imagine it happening. The question is, is what do we think is going to happen? I mean, I don't think anything's going to change between now and the end of the season unless we see a bunch more high profile things. But who do you fire in this situation? They're both obviously really good drivers. Nico is still leading the championship, but Lewis has sort of been the Mercedes chosen son for a while. Nico Rosberg's been there longer. I mean, it's it's a really complicated thing, and there's not an easy call to make there. But one wonders if these two can continue to be teammates or if just personality-wise they can't do it. The real question, I think, comes in in a race or two or whenever, if there's a situation where, for whatever reason, one driver's on a different strategy, they want to let somebody around, the tires are what they are, whatever— there's a team order given and one or the other doesn't do it, doesn't get out of the way, doesn't allow the other driver to get around, then that's more of a cause for like, hey, it's one thing to race and race fair and then push it to say, okay, well, crashing each other out, that's one thing. Everybody, you know, everyone took their lumps on that, but we're still leading the championships. We're still doing okay. But if there's somebody who's really just denying a, an order from their boss and just sort of saying, oh, screw you, I'm not going to get over to let this guy through just because of our personalities, that's when you have more of a reason to look at, okay, if this guy can't work with his teammate, but also just can't work with us on the pit wall when we're all supposed to be a team and it's as a whole a team operation, then that's the kind of thing that could really lead to 
start shopping around contracts and you know start making calls to Marinello or whatever and say, hey, let's work something out because I'm not happy where I am and I don't like the people I'm working with, so let's figure something else out. I think that's exactly it. Lewis signed a three-year contract with Mercedes last year, I believe for $150 million, not too shabby. But Nico is on the last year of his contract and Gerhard Berger, another Austrian, I do believe, is negotiating Nico Rosberg's new contract with Mercedes. More episodes like this, especially if the team decides that Nico is more to blame than Lewis, these are the type of things that might push Nico over the edge and convince him to try another team, even if that other team is less competitive. It's a real fascinating thing. The fact that this wasn't... (laughs) We saw this happen, was it 2014 or 2015? in Spa, where they came together and there was real heat there, and real tension there. It was just the absolute perfect storm what happened in Spain earlier this year. And now this, these two are just proving completely incompatible. The more you think about it, Lewis isn't a great teammate. (laughs) He's had trouble with a fair amount of his teammates. And looking back in my mental Rolodex, I think you'll love this. His best teammate was Jensen Button. And I think Jensen Button might be available next year, Mercedes. Something to think about. Elder statesman, sensitive to the driver, good development. Just, I'm just saying. Back to being a yeah, British dream team uh, with uh, with those guys, except then for a German constructor. Yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, it, it's interesting with the dynamic, like we talked about being in Austria this time. The next race, of course, is the Fish and Chips Grand Prix itself, none other than the British Grand Prix. And that's just this weekend, you know, coming up. So it's already, you know, a quick back-to-back for these races, then a week off, but then Hungary and then Germany. So in terms of nationalism and all that, that's all that's all coming up <laughs> with Britain uh, this coming weekend and then a couple weeks after the uh, German Grand Prix then from Hockenheim. So we'll have to see over the next three races how things shake out uh, because then we've got basically the, you know, a bigger break and then we go to Spa and all that. So between now and the summer break, how are these guys? Are they playing fair? Can they move past this kind of thing? seems like every, every time there's this coming together, you get some press release a little while afterwards and there's a picture of the guys talking or holding, shaking hands or whatever and saying, oh yeah, that's all behind us. We're all here to race. We're all here to win and no hard feelings. And yet that's not really how humans work in general. So it's like, it's like you know, I don't take a lot of, uh, don't, don't believe those that, that closely. Um, so yeah. then you see another, another issue and says, Oh no, we've had issues all year. And then, Oh no, but now everything's fine. So we'll have to see if we get that kind of uh, release from the team to say, yeah, everything's fine. We had some miscommunication. Oh, it was just this break problem. And Nico was never, never trying to be difficult. And yeah, he was confused when he was asking his questions about being difficult. No, 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 it's just a break problem or what, you know, we'll see what they say. Or if team orders come into effect and if the in the British Grand Prix that Hamilton has to get out of Rosberg's way and the team says, hey, you have to do this because of the strategy, you know, because reasons. And then if he does that or if he says, nope, I'm in front of home fans or whatever, or if there's another, you know, shamazel uh, problem with the pits uh, where one guy or another gets held up for no fault of their own, but just a mechanics problem or a wheel nut or whatever the issue is. If those are the kind of things, too, that's especially that would make a driver really, really upset with the team to say, OK, I need to shop around and, and find another team because this team is screwing me. Although I guess if I'm those guys, do I want to go to Ferrari? Their strategies, it seems like they keep losing out on these opportunities where they could have done better strategy wise. And, you know, this tire thing may just really have been unlucky for Vettel. It's tough. You say, okay, who's, you know, where do you want to go for that? And then of course, Williams still has this big connection with Mercedes and that's still kind of weird, but maybe you figure that's the next best car because it's got the Mercedes powertrain or, you know, you're not going to jump to a Force India. That just seems weird. I don't know. It's an interesting question. And uh, I don't think one easily answered, but I think the next three races will give us a lot of insight into kind of how the rest of the season is going to go. And then we'll start seeing probably more silly season stuff elsewhere on the grid and kind of see how things shape up. 
couple of points I want to make. First of all, Ferrari has the best company cars. So even if the race car itself isn't the best thing out there, you're still going to be rolling pretty hot. So I think that's kind of cool. I give uh, Ferrari company car bonus points. I also give Ferrari clothing a couple of bonus points. Ferrari red is quite fashionable. The other thing that I find fascinating, if we talk about team orders for just a second here, if Mercedes had team orders, theoretically, both cases would have benefited Nico Rosberg. Nico Rosberg was in the lead on the last lap of the Austrian Grand Prix, what we just saw, and Nico Rosberg passed Hamilton very cleanly and was in the lead when they had their collision in Spain. Now, okay, you could argue that if they had team orders, Nico Rosberg would have been told not to pass Lewis Hamilton in the first place. Maybe that's the case. But be careful what you wish for. If there are team orders, it might actually benefit Nico more than it benefits Lewis. But as you say, what's happened has happened, and it's really important to watch the next three races before we get to the summer break to see how this pans out and to see if anything comes in terms of announcements from Gerhard Berger about Nico's contract because before this race, they were saying it's well on the way, Nico's going to get a two-year extension and all this kind of stuff, but there was nothing official. It wasn't signed or anything like that. So I am quite curious to see if this puts any kind of wrench in any kind of deals. The silly season may, in fact, be the silliest season we have seen yet. Okay, I would like to switch topics. This is our 200th podcast that you and I are recording right now. That's right. Our first podcast was recorded in 2007. That was a long time ago. Yes, for the Malaysian <laughs> Grand Prix. It was in April. I want to say 17th, something like that. I don't know, mid-April. Anyway. I don't know. I just feel like it's worth having a moment of reflection here. In 2007, I remember being ecstatic when we got over 500 downloads of the podcast. And we were like, whoa, this is amazing. <laughs> if we got 500 nowadays, we'd be very disappointed. And I remember going through all these different variations of microphones and softwares. And at one point, we had a flat screen with the race results put up off to the side that we were referenced. And then we look at our laptops for other things. We had the podcasting basement. We had the series where we didn't start recording the podcast until like two in the morning. Those are the days, man. Yeah. Now there's kids, there's wives, there's families, there's houses. <laughs> it's just kind of a interesting moment to look back and go, wow, a lot's changed. And yet this podcast has stayed with us. And I, I think that's kind of amazing. Yeah. And uh, speaking of kids and families and uh, personal news, since we talked about uh, last show that my wife and I were expecting our second, he has arrived. And I'm proud to say I'm now father of two. I've got uh, Olive, who's almost two years old, and now little Nico James Lau, who is just now five days old and uh, the cutest darn thing in the world. So that's kind of exciting. Uh, kind of funny that, you know, all this talk of, of Nico and Lewis and all that. And uh, my little boy's named Nico, not really after Nico Rosberg. It's just a name that we liked. And it's kind of funny. It's uh, as we talked about. It's after Nico Hulkenberg. That's right. Uh, arguably the most popular name in Formula One at the moment. And uh, exciting, unless you count uh, the two spellings of Daniel as together, which we do not. It's two different spellings, yep. two different names. It doesn't count. But yeah, it, that's been a whole new adventure for me. Back to uh, the, you know, tiny, tiny baby phase of, uh, of taking care of a little one. Yeah, super excited to uh, to have the little guy and have him as part of my family. And the first time we packed up the minivan with both of our kids in there and the wife and the whatever. And I'm like, yeah, living the life, man. Got the van, got the wife and two kids and here we go. So you are going to experience yeah. a small part of that joy soon with uh, having your own kid. That's going to be a big change for you and super exciting for us to uh, to follow. For now, man, I'm busy and tired a lot, but that's how it goes from the very beginning. And we'll see how things all shake out. 
I met young Nico today. He is super adorable. As Jim said, he is not lying there. I think the name Nico suits him very well. He looks very content. He looks very at peace. And he looks like he's ready to tear it up in a few years in a go-kart. So start saving now. So, Jim, now all you have to do is get 0.3 more kids, because I believe you already have the white picket fence, and you will have quite literally hit the average American dream. (laughs) Or whatever, the statistical American dream, I think, is the better way to say it. Yeah, I got the two cats and a dog, and yeah, man, it's all come together. So it it is funny thinking about nine years ago, doing this out of our apartment or whatever, we were roommates, and I don't remember what, uh, I guess, when... We were, no, Jim and I were roommates at one point, but we did not podcast then. It was, the first time we did it was when you lived in Ypsilanti. Yeah, that's right. So it was. And you had that room there. During college, yeah. And then Livonia. Yep. And then I got a house <laughs> and then, yeah, we got to play. Yeah, anyway, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's evolved yeah. a little bit over the years and. Uh, yes. And, and I keep looking back. Anytime I pull up episode one of our show from, like I say, April 12th, 2007, uh, the the big thing that strikes me is it was 24 minutes long <laughs> and we had, that's, that's the little thing that gets me, which there's so many podcasts that are like that though. The first episodes are kind of 20 minutes or whatever. And then they all of a sudden, oh yeah, hour and a half and whatever. So anyway, it's interesting times as always. Well, we'll see how with schedule is certainly, you know, my life as dad of two and uh, your life soon as dad, how, how that'll affect our podcasting schedule. I'm not thinking that'll be a positive change for the podcast schedule, but we'll see how, how everything goes. Yeah. I think the best we can hope for is no change more likely there'll be some change. But at this moment in time, targeting no change, knowing very well that there could be some change. <laughs> I'm imagining a phone call to you, uh, you know, in sort of the next whatever month or so. Say, hey, Robin, how's it going with fatherhood? Some change. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what there is. There's no change in motivation. That's what I think is the most telling part. Nine years on, I still love getting together with you, Jim, and putting together this podcast every bit as much as I did nine years ago, probably more so. I just really genuinely cherish the group of people we've gotten to know and converse with back and forth. And this community that's built around us, it's small, but it's just so nice to have the interaction. I just, I really cherish it. I really, in some form or another, it absolutely will continue on. Maybe, just maybe, not quite exactly the same as it is now <laughs> but not for lack of trying yeah and we'll just have to see exactly how uh how everything works out for our schedules and timing that's the biggest thing really it's just the number of hours in the day with all the projects and everything once the kiddos are, are part of that that's a whole new thing but yeah man i'm super happy that it's so cool that we made it to 200 looking forward to uh still kicking ass and putting out podcasts so it's uh, all good fun oh man you liked it so much you said the swears i did however we should talk predictions, I think. Oh, man, we totally should. Because you, sir, and 23 of your closest friends scored zero points with a Hamilton Hamilton completely correct prediction what? and dominated over lots of people. Damien thought Rosberg-Rosberg, that in this case was worth eight points. So, uh, you know, with the, the penalty in, in qualifying and then the, uh, you know, of course, the race finish. I was like, oh, I'm going to be super brilliant. I'm going to pick Hamilton on pole, but then I don't think he's going to win. I think it's going to be Vettel, and I got 20 points because Vettel uh, failure and 20 points. So I tied with a number of people for 71st place. Uh, my prediction would have been just as good if I had picked Wehrlein, Wehrlein. So I tied with, with Pascal Wehrlein <laughs> and Esteban that's Gutierrez, nice. actually. So that's a thing. I did not fare so well. But uh, as I mentioned, yeah, you and uh, and 23 other people did pick correctly for Hamilton Hamilton. 
looking at the overall results, I am in 13th. I lost five positions this time with my poor choice of Vettel. Henry Keyes hanging out at the top spot with 39 points. He is four points ahead of Nico Rosberg, who is himself a point ahead of Gustavo Barrichello and Rich Danby. And then Craig the Kilt tying fifth spot with Graham McLaren Harris. I'm not sure if that's his real middle name, but it's a cool name. And a huge shout out to Mr. Will Carver. The Austrian Grand Prix was his life coming good a bit. He His life. This is his whole up. life. Well, <laughs> well, this small part of his life, I should say, because both Jensen Button, the hubris that he has predicting himself on pole and win, tying Will Carver, who did the same with just seven points. Jensen Button, because remember, it is grid position, not qualifying position. Jensen Button was third and sixth. That's two and five points, seven total, total for Jensen Button. That is a milestone, if there ever was one, I'd say. Congrats to you, Will Carver. Jensen Button and Will Carver tying for 41st place in the Austrian round of prediction. So, Britain, Fish and Chips, home of Lewis Hamilton, home of Julian Palmer as well. Maybe he'll do well. I don't know. Jensen Button, of course, and, you know, most of the Formula One teams. I think Lewis will do it again. Man, I just... Uh, I got burned pretty bad by Vettel. Doesn't mean they're not going to do well in Silverstone, but I'm not 100 percent on a on a choice here yet. Do you have a Do you have a pick selected? Oh yeah, let me make your life easy. Okay, it's fish and it is chips. It's Lewis Hamilton all the way. Are you thinking fish for pole and chips for the win? I am not changing a thing. If there was ever a race result to keep Lewis Hamilton pole and win, this is it. Yeah, I'm not budging. Okay, so Damien's prediction, Hamilton, Hamilton. Robin's prediction, Hamilton, Hamilton. My prediction, oh man, I don't know. It's crazy times over there at Mercedes these days. So, well, no, I think it's also crazy times at McLaren. That's, it's probably yeah, that's well, right. Yeah, it's crazy times everywhere. I don't know. You know, Raikkonen was on the podium today. He's racy right now. He's he's had some good success at. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm uh, I'm really I'm 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 waffly on this one. And I keep looking around at the option thinking, oh, Rosberg on pole, maybe, you know. You don't want waffles, you want chips. But I love waffles. Your fish. Well, that's, a, that's more of a spa thing, I guess, but waffles are so good. Fish and waffles, is that a thing? Hmm. We should look into that. We we <laughs> we should. I'm going to do it. I'm, I don't want to do the same thing as everyone else. I'm going to put Rosberg for the win. I'm just, I'm thinking there's some craziness <laughs> oh, happening man. and some of that. If you want to hear some booze. Oh my god. It's not that I want to hear booze. I need to I, I lost a bunch of positions here, so I need to I need to think outside the bun. The yes. bun. <laughs> it's a fast food thing. It's late, all right. You know what? Two kids <laughs> I've got. Is. Two kids keeping me away. Uh two hundred and we are barely holding That's on. That's right. <laughs> Hamilton for pole, Rossberg for the win. I think there's gonna be something crazy that happens and that thing will involve Hamilton and uh a bunch of people are gonna get hosed and I am not and I'm gonna like win all the whatever and it's gonna be great even though I'm generally still a Hamilton fan. But hey, predictions, that's what it is. So there you have it. Jim going bold on predictions. If Jim is correct, I think there will be anarchy in Britain. Brexit just wasn't enough. This would bring them over the top. I hope for the entire United Kingdom's sake that Jim is incorrect about predictions. And icing on the cake, if I'm correct, that'd be sweet. But yeah, hopefully... Anarchy won't happen. On that note, 
feel free to visit funwithcars.com where you can comment on the post directly. There are links to our Twitter and Facebook feeds, and you can see all the podcasts right there with all the beautiful show notes we put together with links to episodes and articles and things that we talk about. In this case, there's videos. There's the poll lab from Lewis Hamilton where he doesn't hit any curbs. We didn't even talk about the curb situation, but... Oh, yeah, there was a curb situation. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can tweet along at hashtag FWCars. And uh, thank you, as always, to people taking part in those. It's a lot of fun. Uh, This was not one that we did live, but uh, some of the ones coming up, we may be able to take part in that. As always, we are looking forward to the British Grand Prix. Cool track, delicious food, and going to be some crazy drama for Lewis Hamilton. I just know it. And we will see if I'm right about that or not. But thank you, as always, for listening. Please stay tuned. In the meantime, I am Jim Lau. And I am Rob Warner. Thank you so much for letting us do this for 200 episodes. Hello, and welcome to Episode 1 of The F1 Show for the 2007 Malaysian Grand Prix. I'm Robin Warner. And I'm Jim Lau. We're the crew that brought you the FormulaOneEtc.com race news podcast, and now we've switched gears, gone to audio only, and have a new show with the F1 Show. Visit us online at f1show.com, and if you have any questions you want to send feedback, email us at feedback at f1show.com. If you missed the Malaysian Grand Prix, Fernando Alonso cruised to victory with his McLaren teammate, rookie Lewis Hamilton, behind him in second. Kimi Raikkonen started and finished in third in his Ferrari, with Nick Heidfeld's BMW Sauber close behind him fourth. Pole sitter Felipe Massa finished fifth, after making an amateur mistake while attempting to pass Hamilton in the opening laps of the race. Giancarlo Fisichella finished sixth for Renault, Jarno Trulli collected two points for Toyota, finishing seventh, and rookie Heike Kovalainen brought the second Renault home in eighth. So anyway, it was a great race at the beginning, kind of simmered down and cooled off uh, later, but Jim, what did you think? For me, two words, Lewis Hamilton. He finished the first race in Australia in third place, finished second here in Malaysia, and it's just, you know, he said he wants to go on to win, and I don't see any reason he can't. He's just been an amazing performance at the start of his career, has really just overshadowed all these other rookies that we've seen, Nico Rosberg, Heike Kovalainen, and, I mean, he's just really been amazing, and I think we're just going to see amazing things out of him. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. You know, pre-race discussions, you heard a lot about Hamilton, but you heard just as much about Kovalainen, and now Hamilton is completely taken over as the rookie sensation. He did a phenomenal job in the opening laps. He drove like an absolute professional, kept his nose clean, kept control of his car through the entire time despite huge amounts of um, pressure from Massa. And, you know, as a result, the thing that stood out for me was that Massa actually drove fairly amateurish. He kind of drove like a rookie to me, made lots of mistakes. Every time he attempted to make a pass on Hamilton, he was passed right back, and he ended up running himself right off the road. I love exactly what, what Lewis Hamilton did. I mean, his, his cool-headedness in dealing with Massa, I think, is what really threw Massa off guard. I mean, if I'm Felipe Massa, I've been an F1 a couple years. I'm a Ferrari driver, and I'm coming up on this rookie guy. It's his second Grand Prix ever, and I, I, I bet I can get around him. And just well, try and, and Massa did have the faster car. Yeah, and, and that Lewis Hamilton was able to hold on is just really impressive to me, you know, acting like a professional. And to me, he's the new Iceman. I mean, keeping cool in that kind of situation I think is fantastic. And also, to credit his success, I mean, I think he's in the right place at the right time, dealing with the, the McLaren now that it's good and reliable, having Fernando Alonso as your teammate. I mean, he's two-time world champion and, and moved into this really good car, a really good team at just the right time. I mean, it's really just the sweet spot, and that's where I think we see these, these really big <coughs> F1 successes is when you get everything right all at the same time. And, you know, great for Lewis Hamilton to make the most of that situation and just come out looking amazing. And I, I really think he'll be able to win his first Grand Prix this year in his rookie season. 
Well, I agree. Although, you know, the thing that stands out for me almost more than is how well Hamilton drove. And I think the key to Hamilton's drive is that he didn't overdrive the car. I mean, he kept the car within the limits of its own capability. And meantime, Massa kept trying to overshoot the corners. He broke way too late. He wasn't following the proper line. And to me, he took two steps back in my book in terms of overall driver driver performance and capability. I mean, these were pretty amateur mistakes. Now, you saw once Massa fell off the road and fell behind a couple places, Kimi Raikkonen was right behind Hamilton. Raikkonen had a level enough head to say, I don't have enough car to pass Hamilton. I'm just going to stay behind him and make the most of the situation. And I think that just shows a different level of driver between Massa and Raikkonen. Yeah, I've not, I've not been, ever really been a big Massa fan. Um, I mean, he was really overshadowed <laughs> by Michael Schumacher in his last season at Ferrari and just sort of came in as a second guy. And uh, back in his days at Sauber and so on, I was never really – uh, never really rooted for him. He did seem to make a lot of sort of these hot-headed mistakes and so on. And, and it's unfortunate to see that he's still doing that, you know, and that, that Lewis Hamilton was able to get the better of him and sort of, you know, outwit him at this at this race in Malaysia here. But, uh, you know, I, I it doesn't make me that sad to see him do poorly, honestly. I, you know, I'm much more of a Kimi Raikkonen fan. I'm glad to see that once he got behind him, you know, he didn't he didn't do anything stupid. He didn't throw the car off the road and uh, and actually, you know, did really well with it, even though his engine wasn't running quite at full song. Now, I have to disagree with you, actually, because... Massa, while I agree with you, I, I am also a Raikkonen fan. Massa, I think, has made huge gains. And I think the second half of last season, a lot of people compared him favorably against Rubens Barrichello as a better Ferrari teammate to Michael Schumacher. He won a race. He was on pole. He, you know, he won his home race in Brazil. That was huge. And he seemed to really gain a level head and gain a lot of respect of the Ferrari drivers. So what happened and here this, in Malaysia? Well, in this race, he was pole. He was pole position in this race. He had the wits about him. To stay under control, no one was looking at him. They were looking at Alonso and Raikkonen. And he went and he captured pole. But then it all fell apart when the McLarens got a better launch at the start of the race, and he just seemed to lose his nerves. After a couple of laps behind Hamilton, it seemed to completely unravel for him. He just got excited, he got emotional, and he just started making what I would say are stupid mistakes. So we'll see if this ends up becoming a trend or if this is just a one-time lapse. He just let uh, his emotions get the better of him. But I think Moss made a lot of gains last year. It'll be interesting to see if he holds on to them. Certainly, I will. What's, so what, what did happen with Kimi Raikkonen's engine? I mean, I know there were there was rumors about them having to switch it out and having hydraulic problems or having uh, cooling issues, I guess. Or what what went on with that? Well, that was kind of the big story leading into this race. I mean, after all, Raikkonen won in dominant fashion in the Australian Grand Prix, had the pole, had the fastest lap, won with several seconds behind ahead of second place. No question he was the uh, dominant figure in that first race. However, in the last pit stop of that race, his engine developed a small water leak and started running hot. Now, current F1 rules uh, mandate you use the uh, same engine for two full race weekends. So he had to use that same engine that was running hot for the second Malaysian race. And the Malaysian race is known as one of the hottest races on the calendar. Yeah. So... They made the decision to stick with that old engine. They could have replaced the engine and taken a 10-spot grid penalty at the beginning of the race. They decided to stay with it. Well, what that meant was he kind of had to nurse the car a little bit. He couldn't use the full potential of that engine. My guess is that the Ferrari engineers told him to back off the revs, and he didn't have full power throughout the race. So he, he was dealing with a wounded car, and that's a bit of a shame because I think McLaren stepped up to the plate for the second race, but I think Raikkonen could have posed a much bigger threat had he had a healthy engine. 
So I guess we'll have to see what happens next week in Bahrain when hopefully Kimi Raikkonen's Ferrari with a brand new engine. It's going to be another hot race, but it should be back up to speed and 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 full power for the for the Ferrari. So it should be a, a good standoff between the McLarens and the Ferraris. Both of them, will, all all the four cars will have fresh engines in Bahrain. Absolutely, and I think again you. Massa was the quicker car in the earlier stages of this first race compared to Raikkonen. And it'll be interesting to see if that gap goes away again when Raikkonen has a fresh engine. I think he had to back off on the revs a little bit at the beginning, and definitely as the race progressed, they were um, having him be careful. So we'll see. Personally, I think Raikkonen did about as good of a job as he could have done in the circumstance he was in. You know, it's so much easier to start ahead someone and stay ahead than it is to actually pass in any track, even though Malaysia is one of the easier places to pass. So I think he consolidated his efforts as best he could, got a third place out of it. He's now behind in the championship, but certainly by no means out of it, doing all right. Now that is a slightly different circumstance than Honda, who going into this had going into this season had a lot more promise than these first two races are showing. Yeah, speaking of behind in the championship, and, uh, and, and last week or three weeks ago in Australia, we found the Super Aguris actually out-qualifying, and those are the, the secondary Honda-powered team, um, out-qualifying the factory Honda teams, which should be using a, a car with a, another extra year of development on it and countless millions poured into its, its work. And, uh, and the car was, ended up being slower than last year's car, which is what the Super Aguris are running. Um, for, this, uh, for this race in Malaysia, Jensen qualified 15th, Rubens 19th. 19th. No. First round. And... Uh, in comparison to the uh, the Super Aguris, Takuma Sato qualified 14th and Anthony Davison 18th. So they the, the Super Aguris, the, the you know last year's car, the lower budget team, split the pair of factory Hondas. And as far as race finish, Jensen was able to claw his way up to 12th spot, um, and uh, Rubens was in 11th, I believe. And uh, and then you know, but uh, Takuma Sato was right behind there in 13th spot, Anthony Davidson in 16th spot. So the Hondas really are only a couple of tenths faster. Than, than the Super Aguri, than last year's car. I mean, they really just seem to be struggling, and, and they say a general lack of grip. Jensen Button had to publicly go out in the media to say, hey, don't start firing people about this. Well, he also you know, said the car was crap. He also said the car was crap, but then didn't want, didn't want his, you know, the team guys to get fired and so on. I mean, they, they've got to do some, some serious restructuring at Honda, or they've got to, I mean, I guess getting rid of David Richards may have been an issue with that, and just having that guy sort of figureheading the team, making those cunning decisions to really, really make a lot of progress at the team. But uh, they've, they've got to do something because their current, package, their current program really just doesn't seem to be working. Twelve months ago, Super Aguri was the perennial backmarker. I mean, especially in the hands of UJ Day, they, they like, were 10, 12 seconds behind They out-minority the minority. Exactly. They were terrible. So now Super Aguri comes in. They get help from Honda. They get Honda's old car. They get Honda engines. But here's the difference. They have two... Very, very hungry drivers in Takuma Sato and Anthony Davison. Now compare that to what I would consider rather complacent drivers in Jensen Button and especially Rubens Barrichello. I agree with you on Rubens Barrichello. I wouldn't go so far as to call Jensen Button hungry, certainly not in the same way. I mean, Anthony Davidson, I have a lot of respect for him. He's always done really, really good times in testing and just been a really reliable driver, and I think he's really sort of still on the way up with his career. I think I think he's going to – I mean, he's been in F1 for a while, but – you know he's a really solid driver, and if and if he can do this with the Super Aguri car, I'd love to see what he could do with, you know, a, a much faster car. I mean, I, not that he would be able to get into one of the top teams necessarily just yet, but I think he's a really good driver, and, and I, I like, you know, like what he's done so far. But and Sato, Takuma Sato, can you match Sato for hunger? Just just pure 
random moves, just just you know off the wall, never, never gonna work. Never say die, never yeah. give up. I mean, some of his work at Monaco in 2005, you know, just just some of these amazing passes that everyone else, there were a lot of the other drivers thought were even too too risky, too much of a no no chance in hell. But he would he would do it, he would go for it, and and I got to admire that kind of spirit in an F1 driver, and uh, just really go out there and try anything, and a lot of times made it work. So they're both good drivers, and. Uh, you know they're they're right behind the, the factory Honda guys, and in some cases ahead of the factory Honda guys. So it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out. If Honda has some tricks up their sleeve or some development that's been done, but I haven't heard of anything that sounds like there's a new anything new right around the corner. That's that's usually the tagline you get from any of these teams. It's oh we were slow this weekend, but watch out for next weekend because we're gonna you know we've got a new aero package or new engine upgrade or anything like that. And I don't know that Honda's got anything quite like that. So they've really got a bunch of work to do. It seems like to get back up to speed. Well, Honda's running out of excuses, and like you say, I think one of their biggest problems is getting rid of someone as creative and smart as David Richards. I think that was a bad move. Back a couple of years back in the bar Honda days, uh, David Richards brought that team to second in the championship. He outmaneuvered Flavio Briatore. That was a fun little uh, match of personalities to see those two kind of fight for second against each other. And I honestly think that they're just lacking that type of resource. Jensen Button was real adamant in saying that personnel-wise they have the resources to be a top team. But you know what? They've had enough time to show that, in my opinion, and they haven't done that. Jensen Button, I think, is a very solid driver, but I just feel like there's a slight bit of uh, Jacques Villeneuve coming in where he's been with a team that's kind of mid-pack for a few years now, and he's starting to get complacent, and he had so much reputation going into that team, I don't know if he's really ever going to be able to deliver. So it will be interesting to see. Now, Toyota, on the other hand, they're starting to make some progress. But, again, here we are. I mean, this is their sixth season. They're still mid-pack. They're kind of in the front of the mid-pack. But far from impressive, in my opinion. They've been a little bit better this year than the end of last year. But if you remember the beginning of 2006, they showed some promise. Ralph Schumacher was actually second place in Malaysia in 2006. They really looked like this might be the final of the year for Toyota. And, I mean, they, they were uh, – your Ralph Schumacher was eighth spot – in Australia three weeks ago. Um, this weekend, Yarno truly made it in its seventh spot, so they've got a total of three points, which, sure, it's better than nothing. It's two consecutive points finishes, but come on, Toyota. With the kind of budget and the kind of resources they have, being a major worldwide auto manufacturer and all the, you know, all the money they can throw at, at Formula One, now with a partnership with the Williams team even to get gearboxes, it really seems like they should be doing better than that. And, you know, at Toyota still is pretty much giving a typical line of we're gonna we're working on it and next race we'll have something amazing but it we're really just not seeing any kind of results out of Toyota yet and I that doesn't surprise me at all to be well, honest. Well, and here we go fifth in the constructors after two races. Who are they behind? Mercedes, Ferrari, BMW, Renault. All right, now let's look at an automotive manufacturing scale. This is the number two automotive company in the world. And soon to be number one. Soon to be number one. They are the leader in hybrid technology. They are a leader in production efficiency. They are known throughout the world as the biggest, baddest automotive company there is. And they have to get transmissions from Williams, a privateer team. They admit, to their credit, they admitted this, that their gearboxes weren't as good as Williams. This is a private team. This is a team that builds zero cars for street production. So... To me, it's interesting to see such huge powerhouse in terms of technology and resources not being able to keep up with the technology transmission-wise with a privateer team. All that aside, though, or all, considering all that, the an F1 gearbox has little to nothing to do with any kind of streetcar. 
I mean, Williams is a team you could say has been in, you know, has been in Formula One for so long. He used to be one of the most, one of the dominant teams and has so much experience in the racing conditions. And it's so different from any street car. I mean, I, uh, you know, show me any parts that are shared on a Toyota Prius and in the F1 car, and I'll show you a surprised now individual. Now would be sweet if there were. Yeah. That would be one sweet hybrid car. But I think, you know, Toyota working their, their relationship with Williams to get the gearbox, I think, is a pretty smart move rather than, you know, wasting more money effectively by building one in-house. I mean, I guess that's going back to their efficiency. So I don't, I don't disagree with that decision to go with the, the Williams gearbox because Williams has so much more race experience. But uh, I really feel like Toyota should have been able to build a solid gearbox by now. And they were usually reliable, but apparently not quick enough, um, or they couldn't push them as hard as they wanted to because uh, we didn't see a lot of gearbox failure in the last few years from Toyota, but uh, just not enough pace either. So, I, you know, again, a little bit more pace out of this car. I mean, three points, it's, yeah, certainly, I mean, that's better than Honda's been, but, uh, that you know, it's really not not up to the results we should be seeing out of Toyota by now. And, again, I don't agree with the de- I don't disagree with the decision to take the gearboxes. I just think it's sad that they had to make that decision. I mean, we'll see. When they first came into the sport, when they came in, they said, five years from now, we want to win the Constructors' Championship. All right, that was six years ago. Yeah, with those kind of predictions, though, it's always hard. I mean, I heard in an interview with Norbert Haug the other day who said, it's not very professional to make, to sit, make uh, predictions. Because you know, every, every team guy, is, as they release a new car, are going to say, oh, it's going to be great, and we're going you know, to be the fastest out there. And I mean, oh, there's only one team that can be the fastest, and, and you know, it always goes back and forth with, between a couple of them. So it's the predictions of saying five years from now, I mean, in a sport like Formula One, there's, there's really no way to know. I mean, last year at this time, if you would ask me, if, if you figured that Renault would be floundering like they are and having as many troubles as they are, I wouldn't have believed you, but here we are. I mean, it changes just that quickly. And even from a couple of years ago with the Michael Schumacher and Ferrari dynasty, and now he's gone and, and you know, we haven't really heard much about, you know, the, the lack of Schumacher in the sport. I don't think it's really affected it as much as people thought because we've got these newcomers coming in with uh, Lewis Hamilton and Heike Kovalainen and, and so on. So, you know, it's, it, it changes so quickly that, you know, it doesn't surprise me that they're not meeting their goals. Maybe F1 is harder than they had figured, but I, I would love to see some pace out of the Toyotas. I, I, I like the company in terms of their, their efficiency and their plans and so on, and, and sort of the way they run things is a bit different, and uh, I'd like to see some success there. But, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to be happening in the next few races. But, again, look at, look at companies like BMW Sauber. You know, they're coming in, and as a complete team, BMW, who's kind of taken over the Sauber team, and trying to run their own program in only their second season are showing some real solid performance. And also Red Bull, they only have a few years in the sport, and they're also starting to show some legitimate speed with much less resources and much less technical background. I mean, to me, that that really says something. I just think Toyota is going about their Formula One program all wrong, frankly. But to go more towards Red Bull, that's another company where I think they might benefit from a different lineup, or at least a driver change. I'm, Some hungrier drivers. I'm getting tired of David Coulthard myself, most notably him complaining about his brakes. Okay, apparently what happened about midway through the race, David Coulthard started losing his brakes, and they went down enough that his brake pedal was actually hitting the steering column. If you look in an F1 pedal cockpit, it's really quite tight in there, and if the brakes go down far enough, they can actually start hitting the steering column which has to feel disconcerting. But after three or four laps of this, he wanted to retire the car. And to me, that's just sad. I think he's getting old. I think he's getting tired. And I think he needs to retire. If he wants to retire the car because he has slight brake trouble, he needs to retire himself. I think that's easy for you to say. Sitting, you know, I was sitting on the, on the armchair here. 
But if you're, I mean, we've both driven cars with no brakes before on the street, and that's one thing, going 35 miles an hour and having to, having to sort that out. But lap after lap, I mean, with the two really long straights on the Malaysian Grand Prix circuit, and, and you're coming up, you've got traffic to deal with in other cars, you're in an open-wheel car that, you know, any, any kind of contact is just going to be disastrous, and you've got a brake pedal where you can't physically push it any harder. It's not a matter of pumping the brakes. It's not a matter of just using a lot of pedal force. It's a matter of the pedal is all the way down against the steering column, I think he made the right call. I mean, he's really not going to do anything well. If he can't do very fast laps, other cars are just going to be passing him. As the leaders pass him, he might cause problems. It might be an incident that would be a penalty or something later on. It's, it's not worth it. I mean, what do they gain from David Coulthard circulating the track, milking his brakes, and, and you know being unsafe at every time he slows down from a fast corner? I think to re- retire the car, get him off the track, get him out of everybody else's way, and go back and you know regroup and work on next time. I think that's the right way to go. I mean, if, you, if it were a bad pedal feel, I mean, Rubens Barrichello, when he couldn't figure out the brakes in the Honda after moving over Ferrari, that's, I, I'd say that's a whiny driver who just needs to figure it out. When Coulthard's got no brakes, when you literally can't push the brake pedal any farther because it's up against your steering column, that's got to be scary. And I think to retire the car, I mean, yeah, he's old. Yeah, he hasn't done very well at Red Bull recently. But, I mean, come on. I got to, you know, the guy's putting his life on the line. It's easy for us to go ahead and say, oh, yeah, stay in the race. I disagree. He's a sissy. You know what? Formula One cars have trouble all the time. These cars are at the absolute limit of technology and everything else. They have brake issues all the times in these cars. I think he could have nursed the, nursed the car home. But perhaps what, what he would they have, have gained from that? Perhaps they wouldn't have gained something, but perhaps they would have. I mean, that's part of the sport. You, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who else is going to retire. 13 laps to go, Nico Rosberg blew up. That might have moved him up a spot. I think you want a driver that's willing to do whatever he can to get that car home. Because it's not even just that specific problem. It's the mentality in general. I mean, if he's so willing to give up so early, in my opinion, there's going to be circumstances where a driver that makes those types of decisions are going to hurt you as a team. And I think he's just past his prime. He was a good driver at McLaren, but he's getting older now, and I just think his mentality is in the wrong place. He's driver coach for Nico Rosberg, if anything. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, I, I stand by, uh, I stand by DC. Not that I'm a huge DC fan, but uh, you know, I, I think you know he probably made the right call, and, and he was there, and we weren't. I mean, it, there, there may be, there may have been more to it than, than we saw just on the TV coverage. Break, I'll, sissy. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that. Sissy. All right. Anyway, well, that's fine. <clears throat> you know, it, you look at you look at a guy like Alexander Vertz, you know, who is now racing for Williams. He's had several years. As a test driver for McLaren, he switched over to Williams. Now he's driving. You know, here's a guy, another guy I really like watching. You know, he he qualified 20th, but he moved up several spots to finish ninth. Very impressive drive. He's trying really hard. Keeps his wits about him. Speaking of David Coulthard, you know, Wirtz, Wirtz made a nice pass on him around the outside of Malaysia, despite the fact that Coulthard almost took off, almost decapitated Verts in the previous race in Australia. And he's even good-natured about it, too. I mean, Verts is joking about it and everything, talking to DC. I mean, he realizes it was, you know, probably mostly David Coulthard's fault, but that it's a racing incident and no amount of, you know, begrudging him is going to make it better. So he's just sort of joking about it and laughing about it. And I think, you know, you got to admire his spirit and that sort of thing. I think David Coulthard was squinting because he couldn't find the old country buffet. He's trying to, where is it? It's time for the early bird special. And my feet hurt. My feet hurt. Where, where? I don't, I don't see anything. And then he just runs right and just plows into Verts. Poor Verts. I don't know. I've had enough. You realize David Coulthard is only 35, right? I mean, yeah, he's old for Formula One, but come on. So? All right. What else? Is that it? <laughs> well, anyway, uh, that was about it for that race. Uh, we'll see you again in a week. 
Yeah, and like I mentioned, uh, feel free to visit F1Show.com. We've got the show notes for every episode. You can leave comments on everything if you've got questions or comments about what we've said. And you can also send email directly to us at feedback at F1Show.com. Of course, our website address, www.F1Show.com. Until next week from Bahrain, this is Jim Lau. And I'm Robin Warner. See ya. <laughs>